and reading, at their very best, are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. Hey listeners, this is the last episode of our second season. Thanks so much for your support and tuning in. We'll be taking a vacation for the next few weeks to rest and recharge our book-loving selves, but we'll be back with all new episodes and great new interviews on August 5th. During our break, we will re-air some of our favorite interviews from the last year in case you missed them the first time around. See you in August. When they think about the publishing industry, many readers can immediately call to mind the big outfits, HarperCollins, Random House, and Macmillan. But there are many small publishing companies scattered all across the country and even locally. Our guest today, Julia Royston, is a former school librarian who began her first publishing company as a way to publish her own books in the exact way she wanted them. She jokes that she has control issues, but those issues led her to become an entrepreneur who now owns and operates two publishing companies that have been around for over 12 years, in an age when most businesses are lucky to make it past the three to five year mark. B.K. Royston Publishing and Royal Media and Publishing, located in southern Indiana, are her two full-service imprints that primarily publish black authors, one focusing on children's inspirational and religious books, and the other publishing more mainstream fiction, such as mysteries, urban fiction, and romance. In this week's episode, she talks to us about why it's so important to have more diverse books in libraries and schools, what the biggest challenge was to starting her publishing company, and how she looks for creative ways such as virtual book fairs to try to promote her authors in the COVID era. Amy and I have a guest today who is a Louisvillian. Her name is Julia Royston, and she is the owner of BK Royston Publishing. So we've never had a publisher on. So Julia, welcome and thank you. Thank you for having me. So we're excited to have our first publisher on. So can you tell us just a little bit about yourself and how you came to the publishing industry? Well, I have always been a reader. I've been an avid reader all of my life. And in 1994, I graduated from the University of Kentucky with my first master's in library science. And so I began the journaling process and I've always loved books. And so I was a a librarian for 30 years. And then in 2007, it was time to compile my journals that I had been writing for years into my first book. So I am an avid reader, but I'm also have a little control issues. So so with my control issues, even though I self-published with another company, my first book, I realized I can do this. So after that, I said, I'm going to establish my own company for my own books, primarily just for my books. So I began writing for myself. I said, oh, I don't know, at least 20 no's to other people until a friend of mine said, I want you to publish my book and I'm going to pay you. 
Now, I think the key thing was, I'm going to pay you. (laughs) (laughs) So when she said that, I said, oh, I need to get serious. Because I was serious about my books, but I needed to get serious about the industry, the business side of writing. I love the creative process. I'm an extremely creative person, imaginative, but I needed to understand the business. So that's really my first beginnings of being a publisher. So when you say that you are a big reader and were a big reader, what kinds of books did you like to read when you were a kid and an adolescent? So when I was younger, you know, hello, God, it's me, Margaret. You know, that's where kind of we all started. And yeah. Then- the Laura Ingalls collection, you know, Little House on the Prairie, just that all of those books, anything that really came through, not only the library, came through Scholastic. Back in the day, we used to have the, the Highsmith books and all of that. My father was a teacher. So therefore, reading was just huge. We bought books from Scholastic. We were avid readers at the public library. So when we left, each one of us had our own bag and my mom had her arm full of books. And my mother, she read to us every night before we went to bed. So, you know, see Jane, Spot, Dick, Run, here we go. (laughs) And by the time it was over, the way my mother was a very expressive reader, and even to this day for my libraries, especially when I was in elementary libraries, I'm a very expressive reader. I want to captivate the reader. So when Spot was running, I was running. When Jack and Jill went up the hill, I was going up the hill too as well. Of course, as you get older, in my middle years, school became so much about reading that I really didn't get to enjoy much reading for enjoyment as much as I was reading for class. But A Bag of Marbles was one of my favorite books. It was about two young men that were running from the Germans during the Holocaust. My teenage and young adult years, I had to go through my Collins and all of the Brenda Jackson, all the romance fiction stuff. So I've had a variety of books that I've read over uh, my years. So I really just enjoy it all. So when you were talking about self-publishing your journals that you had kept, Mm -hmm. were those journals about your experience as a librarian? You know, I've written 55 books. Oh my gosh. Yes. And my first book was a book of poetry, and I have not been able to put together a collection of poetry since then. So that was really more musing and just writing down thoughts and ideas just imagery. So those journals were not on my librarianship journey. I've mm. since written a children's book on Marianne the librarian that I really dedicated to my 30 years in librarianship to really encourage kids to go in the library and to read. But I still have one on the back burner in regards to my life as a special area teacher in libraries and as a technology teacher. So hopefully that'll come out sometime soon. Well, it sounds like you're pretty busy with your publishing company. So tell us a little bit about BK Royston Publishing. And you also have Royal Media in publishing. So tell us the challenges of starting your own publishing company, what you had to learn. Well, the first off, the difference in BK Royston Publishing and Royal Media and Publishing is BK Royston Publishing is what I call the faith-based family-friendly. So that's where the children's books are. That's where the inspirational books are. That's where 
the kids and the grandmother can be in the same room at the same time. Mm -hmm. But royal media and publishing is everything else. That's what I call mainstream world, where there's uh, murder mysteries, urban fiction, spicy romance fiction, no whole part over there. So that came along a little bit later. So BK Royston Publishing was established in 2008. Royal Media and Publishing was not established until 2015. So there was a space and time where I kept saying no, because it's hard to mix urban fiction and children's books and inspirational books and Christian books kind of in the same branch. So I knew that needed to be a second brand. But at the time, I really didn't want a second company. But because of continuing asking, and I didn't want to leave money on the table, I went ahead and established Royal Media and Publishing in 2015. Uh, I think over time, I had a lot of obstacles that were more related to people being serious about their books rather than even starting the company. Because the way my business works you pay me, but the work does not start until we have a contract and payment. So that is usually, you know, I don't have to have a lot of inventory. I don't have to have a lot of startup costs and all of that. It's a per project basis. You pay to have the work done. I deliver it to your satisfaction. And then we move forward from there. So it's a pay as you go type situation. It's not like brick and mortar. I have a lot of overhead. I've always been able to be mobile so I could work anywhere. My husband was in IT for 31 years at UPS, so we're geeks. We do not have any biological children, so technology is what we do. So the latest, greatest thing out there and available, that's what we have. So I had the technology. My regular job funded anything that I was doing from there that I needed. So therefore, those obstacles of budget have not really been major. Now, growing it, marketing and promotions is expensive, but finding clients who are really serious about what they do has been a frustration for me because some people write because my mama told me I couldn't do it, so I do it. Well, is that really a good reason to, to write a book? No, because you have to really love it. It's not just to prove a point. And then you've got people who speak and travel who just need a book, but their primary focus is not the book. Their primary focus is their other aspects of their business. And then you've got the people in the, in the middle who are like, it takes all this. I got to do what? You know, it is a vast dichotomy. And now after 12 years in this business, I really am interviewing people to determine where they are as opposed to other people who are wanting to grow their business and be profitable, which we all want to do that. But in the meantime, I am striving to make an impact on the industry. I'm striving to put out quality books that make sense, not for you to prove somebody wrong that you couldn't do it. There is a vast difference in what my challenges are as opposed to others. It has its challenges, but I write. I've continued my journey. So I enjoy the writing process. I enjoy the coaching part of it. I enjoy the creative part of it. But helping people to see what they have in their hand and an opportunity is different. And some people walk away and say, I'm not ready to go, or I'm not ready to take this to the next level or fear or whatever. So there's a lot of emotions that go into it, even more than signing contract and paying for services. Or do you do the editing as well? I basically tell people from your head to Amazon. 
you know, we do everything in between. So we have cover design, editing, ISBN number, copyright, formatting, everything in between. So from your head to Amazon. So some people say, I know I want to write a book, but I don't know what to write about. Well, I, I enjoy that process so I can help you start that. Or somebody says, I like your covers, Julia. Can you just design a cover for me? And formatting, I can do that too. So I can do a la carte or full packages, either way. Julia, I'm thinking as a writer myself and as somebody who has edited for other people, you know, I've had people say to me, I have this idea or I've written something up and I get it and look it over. The form it's in is not something that somebody could publish. And because I don't have a publishing company, I try to give them constructive criticism, but also be gentle. So how do you deal with those uncomfortable conversations? They are uncomfortable. And sometimes they turn out well, and sometimes they don't. I'll just be honest with you. But, you know, the difference in giving your opinion and the difference of having your name and all your contact information on the copyright page and then on the back And the title page having your logo are two different things. So if I'm going to put my logo on it, and now, especially in this area, in the Kentucky, Louisville, Southern Indiana, they know me. So people will turn their book over and say, Julia Royston did that. So that's my reputation on the line. If they see Royal Media, they know that Julia Royston had something to do with it. But if I'm going to put my logo on it, if I'm going to put my name on it, I have to be able to stand by it. I have to stand behind it. It's like any other brand. And that's one of the reasons why I've kept the business. I outsource a lot of things, but I keep it where I'm first in, quality control out. And that's the way I roll because uh, my name's on it. My logo's on it because I want to be able to be proud of it when it's seen. Now, some people don't care about what the cover looks like. Oh, my child drew it, and I want that to be on the cover. You know, big more to be on the cover than the man on the moon. But I can't convince them otherwise. And if they're okay with that, go right ahead. And some of those books I haven't put my logo on. I won't do it. You know, I'll just say, here you go. And they'll proceed with it like a, a self-published book. I really strive to tell people the truth. Now, I've had people say, take me off your email list. I don't ever want to talk to you again. Fine. But I was honest. I've had people do it, come back around. Okay, Julia, I'm sorry. I apologize. You were right. And I say it. I'm not screaming at you. I'm, I'm just like, are you ready for the truth? I need to tell you honestly, in my honest 12-year opinion. And sometimes it goes well, and sometimes it doesn't. But then I'm able to sleep at night knowing that I told you the truth. So you've been a teacher and a librarian. Why did you make the jump, besides wanting to publish your own books, was there any other reason why you decided to jump from encouraging reading from the teaching standpoint to now through the publishing realm? You know how some things you just think, okay, this is one person who I publish and they're going to pay me. But when it escalates from one person to now 150, you just say, wait a minute, I got something in my hands. What am I going to do with it? Am I going to shut it down or am I going to continue to grow it? I do not feel like it's by happenstance or by chance that I'm in this industry and that I take it seriously and that people are pleased enough with what I do that they keep telling other friends. Believe you me, they keep telling more people and keep telling more people. (laughs) So the transition was really kind of smooth for me. I retired at 55. I'm now 57. 
I had to make a decision. Are you going to be able to be able to do both? And when I was able to retire and be able to leave that life, I realized that there is a void. There is a void in the publishing industry that I needed to fill. So I wanted to be on the other end as opposed to receiving things going, wow, why does it look like that? Why don't we have more of this or A or B or C when I now know that I can influence that? Being able to have an impact and an influence in whatever way I can and whatever level I can is important to me now that I'm older and that I've seen some things, I've read some things, and I have some creative ideas to bring to the table. So I think seeing that void in the industry, I'm able to bridge that gap and close that and narrow that void and speak to a voice of people that have another idea and want to present another voice and some great creative characters. You bring up an interesting point, which I have thought about myself. I know people who have wanted to be published and they think, New York. They think the big, big, huge publishing companies. And my perception is it's very hard to get published by those. And so I would encourage people to seek some of the smaller, more regional publishers because I felt like for them, it was more realistic. The biggest thing about New York that is so great is because it has the machine. It's being able to pick up the phone and call the major networks. That's one of the major things that people are looking for. They're looking for the machine that's out there to help you promote it and help you pick up the phone and do that. That's the one thing that self-published and independent houses have a limited access to. Where technology and the pandemic is kind of leveling the playing field a little bit because can have that same access. But that is one of the, the major advantages, of course, is having that machine to pick up the phone and contact these editors of these major publications and they actually answer the email and answer the phone and respond to the text and will take the meeting and let the pitch be heard. But otherwise, that's where we all fight for and would like the opportunity for. One of the things that we've been thinking about, too, is the lack of diversity in the publishing industry. I mean, I think sometimes because there have been more Black authors being published, like Angie Thomas and N.K. Jemison and Colson Whitehead, people think, oh, the industry is so diverse. But research shows that between 76 and 84 percent of the publishing industry is white. So did you see that lack of diversity when you were a librarian? And did that motivate you? That has been a part of it. That has been a vast part of it. As a librarian that has hosted scholastic book fairs for many, many years, or have had a limited amount of books that we could order or a limited budget, it makes it very difficult. You don't see as many diverse authors. Now, I think the the African-American self-published authors with that African-American main theme child is up to 10%. But when I first started 12 years ago, it was like four to 5%. Main characters of Asian descent and especially Native American descent or of Spanish or Latin descent is even less. I'm speaking on the elementary age. We haven't even got to adults. So let's imagine in elementary school, 
You're wanting to encourage children to read, but when for the majority of the books in the classroom have children that do not look like them, would you want to necessarily want to read that book? Not for pleasure. It may be required for you to read that book for a specific assignment or specific lesson. Okay, sure. But when it comes time for my free time, my free reading choice, and then I don't have any books that look like me or have representation that looks like me, you're going to kind of get turned off from the reading process. And that happens very young and very early. I understand that people reproduce themselves. They reproduce what they see and what they're most comfortable with. So therefore, I do have published authors that are not all African-American, but I have to be open for that. I have to be open for um, to hear other voices and to come from diverse perspectives. And the industry overall has not been so. So I want to be able to influence it rather than trying to beat down doors that are not receptive, as Tyler Perry says, go ahead and create your own table, go ahead and get your own door, go ahead and get your own studio and, and do your own thing. So I think there's room for all of us. And I think, especially for continuing a love of reading has to start extremely early. And one of those things is making sure that you have diverse characters. I don't mean that every book that you read all has to have an African-American character, but I believe there should be diversity. We should be able to read about Native American children. We should be able to read about Asian children. We should be able to read about children from Europe and those in Australia and literally around the world. So I want not only diversity, but inclusion as well. Being able for all voices to be heard is really critical and has now become a part of my motto and my mantra and a part of what I do. So I know that you have some virtual book fairs. Are most of those your children's books? No, I, I recently did a all-male virtual book fair, which was a huge hit. I went live on Facebook, on social media, and it was all men. So there was a diverse, some of them had co-authored children's books with their wives. Some of it was poetry. Some of them had basically converted a lot of their dissertation studies. So it was over the top. I'll probably focus on virtual book fairs as we get closer to going back to school, whatever that going back to school looks like. But that'll be more children's books. But right now it's a little bit of everything. It's really been an awesome experience. So I'm really enjoying it. And it saves on travel. It saves on expense. 2019, I did several book fairs in malls. And so I was in Dallas and Nashville, and but this really allows a lot of people to be heard on diverse platforms without having to leave your house. How do these book fairs work? What kind of platform are you using? So I'm promoting, of course, on my email list. And right now we go live on Facebook because that's been one of the, the main ways to share. And then the replays are on YouTube. And then I share the replays on other platforms as well, as well as have some of the audio on my podcast. It goes to a, a multiplicity of places. And I really encourage authors to do marketing and promotion, which is a whole nother world for authors, period. And the marketing and promotion, people agonizing over the writing and the publishing. Marketing and promotion, that's where the real hard work begins. 
So your BK Royston has a YouTube presence. Tell us yeah. what, what you have on YouTube and how you've utilized that format to promote Black authors. Well, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I was not very good at it early on or up until recently because I really have been the queen of live events. I'm from that Jerry Maguire movie. I'm good in the living room. I'm good at the event. <laughs> you know, I'm good behind the table. I'm great at the vendor booth. But of course, with the season that we're in now, I'm virtual. So I had to really build that. So my events, sometimes Facebook Live would let us go live and sometimes it wouldn't. So therefore, we had to build a presence on YouTube to really make that happen. So we have been really been on a campaign to subscribe to our YouTube channel. I've come a long way. I've got a, way, a long ways to go. But one of the things that's there are the, the replays from the events because people want to be able to see the event when they didn't get it live or it's already gone from Facebook. So they want to be able to see it in another place whenever they want to. I also tell authors, whoever they are, people need to be able to see you in action. So sometimes your YouTube channel can be used as a profile, as a archives, so that people will be able to see what you've done in the past. So I've used it a multiplicity of ways, as well as a way for authors to, to utilize it, because they can also send that link and use that on their media kit or use that in their social media as the replay of where I was. And even if other podcasters want to have them on or other medias want to have them on, well, what do you look like? What do you sound like? What do you do? It can be used in a multiplicity of ways. Sure, it should be used primarily if you have subscribers. So I do have my events posted there. I do have teachings there. Motivation is there. Inspiration is there. Promo commercials about myself are there. But primarily, it is a place where I can utilize it in the future. And then other people, it can be a historical marker for not only myself, but the guests that I have on and as a training tool for me so I can get to be a better interviewer and a host. Can you tell us about some of the books that your company has published? Have there been books that have come out this year that you'd like to tell us about? Well, one of the ones that I was just really honored to publish was Miss Betty Baye's Love Story. And she did a memoir that just came out the end of 2019, uh, The Book of David. And I'm super excited because she is a veteran Black journalist. She has been historically a columnist for the Louisville Courier Journal. So I was really over the top excited when she honored uh, B.K. Royston Publishing to publish her memoir. It is set in East Harlem in New York. That is a wonderful conglomeration of not only her love story, but visuals of New York, as well as music every season. So it's a real heart-wrenching story, love and loss to cancer. But it is just a wonderful memoir that I was honored to publish. Now, I write in multiple genres. So I write children's books, inspirational business books, and everything in between. And one of the things that I was really missing was that tween age, middle school, and I developed a character, Terrence the Terrific. Terrence, he's the only child, 
his mother and father tell him he's terrific and he's wonderful to really build his self-esteem. But when he goes to school, he doesn't feel so terrific. So follow the journey of Terrence the Terrific. It is going to be a series. If I get a chance to stop publishing other people to finish <laughs> writing book two, <laughs> already uh, no book two is the, uh, the STEM lab project because he loves STEM. He's a nerd and they tease him about it. So the bully comes out in book one, but he gets a little revenge in book two. So Terrence the Terrific. So I'm super excited about that, as well as a plethora of other books that are out there. But those two, I'm just going to mention right away because I'm really proud of the book of David. So you mentioned your podcast. Does the podcast have a name or is it BK Royston Publishing? No, it's Live Your Best Life because I want to talk about more than just writing. I want to talk about what I want to talk about. So the podcast, I, I do special events, of course, on social media so that people will be notified. That's the beauty of what I love. Now, I know there's subscriptions on podcasts, but some people are on social media so much that I probably can capture them better there. And then I'm on Buzzsprout. So if you want to hit that later, fine, you can find that. But Live Your Best Life is pretty much all the aspects of me because there's a a multiplicity of things that I enjoy and I'm a part of. My education self, my music self, my writing self, my publishing self, but just being a woman self and then being a business owner self. Because besides the publishing industry that I'm in, I'm still a business owner. And to survive that three to five year mark, still afloat, still moving forward, is a feat within Mm -hmm. itself, period, no matter what your business is. So I feel like I'm really striving to speak more to that, especially with the girls movement, the girls rock movement, that we really need to make sure that we have uh, females who understand the power of their own money and controlling their own money. And that whole, he buys me is not cool. I mean, if he does, great. If he doesn't, buy your own. Come on, girl. No. I mean, that must be nice, but I don't, I have control issues. I said that at the top of the show. (laughs) (laughs) Just don't let anybody be controlling you like that. So how has COVID impacted your business? Well, I can honestly say that my business has soared during COVID because people have realized that there was something they were supposed to do a long Mm. time ago. People have actually lost family members. Got to reach out to an author right now. Um, My sister died and oh my God, I didn't do it and I didn't get it finished. Life is short and Julia helped me. And I, I don't erase emails either, especially if it's somebody who reached out to me. I'm not good at deleting stuff and I'm glad I'm not because I've had people reach out to me from three years ago, four years ago and say, I'm ready now. I'm like, who are you? What are you writing? And so I fortunately have those emails to go back and say, okay, I'm ready. I got it. COVID has been a wake up call for a lot of people and business wise, it has really allowed people to find my business, go get that business card. And somebody told them. And so as far as business that way, it has really progressed. And I'm very thankful and grateful for the business, but I'm not thankful and grateful for COVID because a lot of people have lost their lives and been very emotional for a lot of people. But then it's been an eye-opening experience to realize, oh, you're not going to be here forever. You could die. You could catch this. It is something to take to heart and take seriously. But also you've been playing around. What have you been doing? And you said you wanted to, and you 
had a goal and you left it and you forgot it. And, you know, here we are. And, you know, mama's not able to see it. And granny didn't get to see it either. And you said you were going to do it five years ago. So it has been really an emotional time as well as striving to feel like how we're going to move forward from this for a lot of people emotionally. Uh, I have just been on my soapbox of sorts of live your best life. That's my broadcast, but live your best life and move forward. Love hard as hard as you can and live all the way out. Don't leave anything left on the table. Make sure you do it all. It's been interesting. So if somebody who either because of COVID or just they've decided it's time, if somebody is interested in contacting you or looking into what you offer, where do you recommend they go? How should they contact you? My website to schedule a conversation with me is talkwithroyston.com. So you go there, check your calendar and realize I'm on Eastern time zone. And then let's have a conversation. And then of course, my business website is bkroystonpublishing.com. All right. Very good. Well, we are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about what we're reading. We are back with Julia Royston and with Carrie. And as always, I want to know what you all are reading. So Carrie, what's been on your nightstand? You may remember when we had that excellent teenage interviewer who lives in my house, who interviewed us, right? Yes. Uh, And she had suggested that I read a book that she suggested to me and that she read Jane Eyre. Your own little mother-daughter book club? Yes. Well, she's still working on Jane Eyre. And I think she's gotten distracted. I know that's shocking. 16-year-olds never get distracted. <laughs> but I read Howl's Moving Castle. That was the book that she wanted me to read. And it was also a book I wanted to read because there is actually a movie. It's a Studio Ghibli anime movie that we have watched. So this is a fantasy novel. It's by Diana Wynne-Jones. And it was published in the 80s. And it tells the story of Sophie who is the eldest of three sisters, and she works in her family's hat shop. A witch comes in, and this witch, she's called the Witch of the Waste. She's just kind of mean. And she turns Sophie into an old woman. And so Sophie, she feels like she can't stay there anymore. So she leaves, and she happens upon this castle that actually moves. It has legs, and it wanders around all over the community. And so she ends up getting into the castle and the person who runs this castle is named Hal and he's a wizard. So Sophie is hoping that maybe she can somehow get this curse that the Witch of the Waste has put on her, get it taken off. And then she discovers other characters in the book who have also been cursed by the Witch of the Waste. So it's this silly kind of fun fantasy story about Sophie and the relationship that she develops with these other characters who have had a spell put on them. So I have seen the movie. And now that I have read the book, I don't know. Sometimes it's hard to say which is better. There were some things about the book that I had a hard time understanding what was going on. And I felt like the movie made it easier for me to understand some things. I enjoyed it. I would say if you've seen the movie and you like the movie, then go ahead and read the book. 
But this is one of those rare occasions where I would have to say I like the movie version better. Why did she want you to read this one? Well, we have watched the movie and she really likes this book. So have you all had a discussion about it yet? No, we haven't had a discussion because in my head, we would do this like a typical book where I read the book she wanted and she reads the book that I wanted. And then we get together and discuss both books. Well, I'm still waiting for her to finish the book and then she's a teenager. So, you know, it may never happen. You know, she's most of the times she's in her room on her phone or she's with her boyfriend. So I'm glad I read it. I can at least lord it over her that mother read the book that you suggested and have you finished Jane Eyre. Moms can always use that to their advantage. You held up your end of the bargain. I did. So she can't say anything about it. But I got to ask a question. This is the publisher side of me. Mm -hmm. The difference in the book and the movie, was it the language? And did the visual in the movie help you? Yes. Okay. Did. And that's what I try to explain to authors that the movie doesn't have to work nearly as hard because we have the visual to add to it. For anybody who is interested in writing, that's the difficulty with writing is that you have to paint the picture with your words. And if the words are not necessarily known by the reader, that's where the the blockage happens. And you're like, I didn't really understand that part because yeah. what the language or the imagery at the time or the setting, it, it can really throw you off. So yeah, I think you're right. And especially in a book that's fantasy, because it's not necessarily rooted in something that's real something that I see every day or whatever it's from somebody else's imagination and so if another person creates that for me visually I'm like oh I get it but yeah there were some things that I was like I'm not really sure what what's What's going on here exactly (laughs) so Julia what have you been reading well I've been reading Traffic Secrets by Russell Bronson. So Traffic Secrets is really striving to help the entrepreneur such as myself. I don't have much time for just really relaxing, enjoyable reading, but it really is helping those who are in business continue to locate and find their ideal customer so that their business can continue to grow. It was recommended by a friend of mine who has a women's entrepreneur group, which I'm a part of as well. And then the other one is Grace Grind by Ms. Shea Baines. And it's really striving to give an intuitive approach to business because everything doesn't necessarily work for everyone. Really, I'm reading two books that are almost kind of opposite of each other, which is interesting because they're both taking an approach to business, but one is these strategic secrets. And then the other one is more of a spiritual, emotional, intuitive direction, still with principles that are business principles, but more of relationship and relating to the person as opposed to, okay, let's find out the people with the most money and uh, where they hang out and what can we entice them to do to buy with us? Because people do business with people they know, like, and trust. Mm -hmm. But if they don't know you, they don't know to trust you or like you. So introducing people to you and really almost kind of the cold call on steroids and the 2020 viewpoint of making cold calls and how to attract people to your business. As a business owner, I need to be able to see both sides 
and maybe find myself somewhere in the middle. Grace Grind really looks at how Grace will take your business where grinding can't. Because have you ever been just working really hard at something and you feel like a failure, but it's your approach as opposed to, you know, working smarter versus working harder. It's the idea that if you get in your lane, if you are centered emotionally and move in the lane that you were designed to move in with your gifts, talents, and abilities, and where you were purposely and divinely supposed to be, it will not be a grind. It will be easier. And it doesn't mean it's going to be without work. It's just going to be easier for you. I feel like I'm living my best life. And that's the reason why I said the podcast, because it's not that it's not work, but it's something that comes natural for me, something that I really enjoy. And it is work and it does take effort. But father used to say, look at Julia. She's she's doing a thing. And so I'm doing my thing, but it's what I was designed to do. It's not like taking me out of my comfort zone. I'm out of my comfort zone and being stretched, but I'm doing what I was put on this earth to do. I feel like that every single day. When you're reading these books, nonfiction, business oriented, do you sit down and read it cover to cover or do you go through and sort of pick things as you need them? I really kind of pick as I need them because sometimes my clients don't allow me to have much time to be (laughs) able to do that. If I take the time out to do that, I'm going to activate something. Even if it's taking a different approach to my business, I'm going to shift gears and do something different. I'm going to take some nugget there that I read and apply it. I really don't like wasting time. It's an opportunity for me to learn and to put into action what I learned. So as a person who has been a book lover all of her life, how is it now when the things that you are having to read while they're helping you learn and grow maybe aren't the fun things that you used to read? So now you're on the inside of the publishing industry instead of just being somebody on the outside who would read the product. Yes, like how has exactly. that affected your reading life? I have to sometimes turn my publisher brain off so that I'm, you know, spend so much time going, oh, I like the way that laid out. Oh, Okay. I like that font. Wonder what that you know, I have to literally strive to turn my mind off. Now I have people who submitted me things and they say, Oh, I'm so sorry for the grammar. I'm able to look past that. I, I'm not one of those people who spends all the time, oh, I can read it. I can get past the first paragraph. I saw five errors. And me, I can look right over those errors. I know that that's the wrong word, but that does not keep me from the meat of the story. I'm looking for the heart of it. I'm looking for the message behind the message. I'm looking for something that is going to help grow me, benefit me. And even when some other author is presenting me with something, I'm looking to see where we can put this in the marketplace. Yeah, we can fix it. I can get an editor to do that. We can help you fix it, but I need to get to the heart of it. Why does somebody need it in their life? Why do they need to read it in their life? That's really probably the one hat that I never take off. Hmm. If I'm reading something, even for business or for myself, I want to know the purpose. Why is it here? Well, Amy, what have you had going on reading wise lately? I just finished a book this morning called Whiskey and Ribbons by Lisa Cross Smith. And her first name is spelled 
L-E-E-S-A, in case you decide to look her up. This book was published in 2018. And Lisa Cross-Smith is a black fiction writer who lives here in Louisville, Kentucky. And this is her debut novel, and it received great reviews from the LA Times, the Chicago Review of Books, and it was listed as a most anticipated book for 2018 by Southern Living Book Riot, to name a few. And she won a Flannery O'Connor Award for short fiction for her first short story collection. So this book, though, Whiskey and Ribbons, is set in contemporary Louisville, Kentucky, and it alternates points of view between the three main characters, Aben, Evangeline, she goes by Evie, and Dalton. And the book starts out with this sentence. My husband, Amon, was shot and killed in the light of duty while I was sleeping. I was nine months pregnant with our son, Noah. So we come to learn that Amon has been killed while checking on a domestic dispute by a man who is mentally unstable. He is a police officer. And so Evie and Amon Royce have been married for several years, and he's a police officer. She is a ballet teacher. And so the third character is Dalton, and he is Amon's adopted brother. So their mothers were best friends, and the boys are best friends, and they were born only days apart. But when Dalton's mother commits suicide, when he's 12, Eamon's parents adopt him and raise them as their own. And by all accounts, Dalton has had a happy domestic life being part of the Royce family. And Dalton has never known his biological father who left when he was several months old. So Eamon and Dalton have stayed extremely close, even into adulthood, and they're almost like a true set of twins. So the chapters from Eamon's point of view start before he meets Evie, then moves on to their courtship and marriage and leading up to the birth of their first child and his untimely death. In the first chapter, we also learn that there is a blizzard six months after Eamon's death. And so Evie and Dalton are snowed in together at Evie's home and they share a kiss. So the chapters from Evie's and Dalton's point of view also start with Eamon and Evie's courtship, but then it continues on to the night of the blizzard and the kiss. So the theme of the book is about grief and how each person deals with it. Dalton had a pact with Eamon to take care of his family if something ever happened to him. So Dalton cares for Evie in the aftermath of Eamon's murder, and he helps her with the baby. He steps in as almost to be like Eamon's replacement in the family. So Evie loved her husband tremendously, but she comes to find that she has tricky feelings for her brother-in-law. And is this due to grief and Dalton stepping in to fill a domestic role? And what can grief make you feel? And are they just finding solace in each other? So in the afterword, the author talks about organizing this book like a fugue. And I had to look up what a fugue is. A fugue is a musical composition where a melody or phrase is introduced in the beginning, and then it's repeated by other parts and it interweaves until the original melody drops out. So the points of view of the story work like that, where eventually Eamon's, his point of view, drop off. There's a, a lot of themes of music in this book. Dalton's a piano player. Evie is a dancer. They listen to a lot of music in this book, and it definitely has a fluid motion feel to the narrative. She also says in the afterword that her job prior to getting married and starting a family was as an obituary writer for the paper. And I can see how writing obituaries would make you curious about the stories behind them. Who was this person? Who loved them? What would you find in the stories that they left behind? 
So Crossmith's writing style, I would call very sensual. And I don't mean in a sexual way, although it has parts of it that are definitely steamy. But she makes you see, feel, smell, taste, all the other things her characters experience. Her descriptions are heavily based in those five senses. And she lets you into her characters rich in her lives. I thoroughly enjoyed this book and I would recommend it. It's a love story wrapped up in grief and some family secrets thrown in for good measure. Right before the pandemic began, she had a new book published, a book of short stories called So We Can Glow. And it has also gotten a lot of praise from critics and readers alike. And I think she's an author to watch. I bought this book when I was at Carmichael. She was doing a author reading for this book of short stories. I had actually won the book of short stories on a Goodreads giveaway, but I bought Whiskey and Ribbons and finished it today. Uh, So was it confusing? I know sometimes when a book has different chapters from a different character's perspectives, it can get confusing. Did you find that to be problematic for you at all? Or I mean, since it was going sort of back in time, did you find that confusing? I did a little bit in the beginning. Uh, And then, you know, the farther I got into it, it kind of came together. But each chapter is labeled with the character who's speaking. So from that sense, it's sort of laid out for you. But because we're dealing with period of time of maybe a couple of years, although most of it happens within, you know, eight months or so, it was a little confusing at first. But then if you just sort of go with it, it, it definitely clears itself up closer to the end. Well, Julia, with you talking about being a person who likes control, I wonder sometimes with somebody having a preference in terms of reading, if it's that kind of control thing. You know, I know, Amy, you've talked about reading certain sci-fi things. If you can't get a sense of what's going on or it's, you know, because it's sci-fi, it's imagined, it sort of makes you feel uncomfortable and you don't know what to do with it. So I wonder that has to do with each individual's feeling of liking to have control over things. I don't know about the control in that instant, but I do really strongly emphasize, you know, making sure that you're able to capture the reader. Because that was going to be my question. If the voice changed every chapter, oh my goodness, so who's talking now? That becomes a interesting writing style. But when you said that each chapter was appropriately labeled of exactly who was doing the talking and the narrating, then I'm back with you. Yes. Yeah. If I hadn't had that, yes, it would have been confusing, but it's simply labeled and therefore you're never in doubt about who's talking. But as far as going back in time, that can get a little dicey. But like I said, it all comes together at the end. I would still recommend it. Now, there's definitely some people in really hate books that go back and forth in time like that. And if you're one of those people, you are probably not going to appreciate this book for that reason. But right. you know, if you're willing to give it a go, I, I would recommend it. All right. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to ask Julia her top five. We are back with Julia Royston, and we're going to ask her her top five. Number one, you are a singer in addition to your other talents. How old were you when you began singing, and what is the top song you sing that gives you the tingles? Oh, my gosh. Um, I first started singing when I was eight years old in the church choir. So I've been singing since then. I write my own music as well. So The top song I sing that gives me tingles probably 
yeah, all of them, all of them that I write. But, <laughs> uh, I love Whitney Houston and I will always love you. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, I love it. That's one of my favorites. Yeah. That song gives anybody tingles when they hear it, I think. <laughs> So as a former teacher and librarian and a person who has done book fairs for school, what is the top thing you love about a book fair? Well, for my school, because it was a Title I school and had always had budget constraints, it was an opportunity for money to come into my library as well as new books to come in my library because I normally wouldn't get the money. I would get new books. Those are the top things I love about the book fair. The things I don't love about the book fair is that because of some of the books were so pricey that my children, because their free reduced percentage was so high, they couldn't afford to purchase them. So Mm. that's the part that I always used to turn my heart about it. And so they would not be able to purchase a book. They would have to get a 50 cent eraser, et cetera. But I, I did like the opportunity to have books inside the library and an opportunity to have exposure to new titles and new books, et cetera. Loved it. When you would get the Scholastic Flyers, there usually was at least one book per reading level that was a 99-cent book. And they were usually pretty good titles, and it would be nice if they'd expand that a little bit and have yes, more than I would love than that. One. Now, there were times when you know they would have the 50% off, and I've gone to the warehouse. I've done that too as well. My husband and I, do not have biological children. So we have bought books, but we've had children that their parents didn't give them any money. So they wouldn't even have the 99 cents. Mm-hmm. So any money that we had, I never would take the money. I would always flip the money and get the new books so that the kids who never could purchase anything. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother didn't give me any money. So, you know, that was the level where we are. The school I was at, by the time I left, it was every child ate breakfast and lunch for free. No one right. Paid. Right. No one pays. So what is the top thing you'd like to see changed in the publishing world as it concerns Black authors? I want the opportunity for really all authors, but if it's a quality book, take a look at it for the literature that it is. But that's the writer side of me. The publisher side of me understands that it's a business. It's not just the book that's being promoted. It's the person as a human being that's being promoted. So I understand that. I just wish there was an opportunity for people of diverse, but especially African-American authors to just have the opportunity for their books to be read and critiqued just like everybody else. And if it's not good enough, it's just not good enough. Not it's a Black author and we don't think we have an audience for that. It's a quality book and that everyone should read on its own merits. Honestly, for me as an African-American woman, that's what I want. If it's not as good as someone else, I want to be better. I want to stand on its own merit and not just to be accepted because I am a Black author. I want it to be good. But I do understand the business side of it. Accepting new authors who have no track record, have no following, are not on social media because of Let's be honest, most writers, as you know, are introverts and they're very creative in their niche, in their office, in their closet, in their cubbyhole, wherever they write. But it's more to that on the business side than just the creative side. There's a whole business that has to be tackled. 
So that's my thing. Give them a chance and give us an opportunity. If it's not good, okay, let's let's do it on that merit. But just to say, no, just because it's a Black author, no, that's not good. Or a Spanish author, or an Asian author, or a Native American author, or a woman, or a transgender, whatever that is. If it's quality, let's go for it. And let's make something happen and let the world hear it. If it's not good, then that's fine. If it doesn't meet with your standards, okay, I'm cool with that. But not having the opportunity and the door to be open and the opportunity, that's where there's a problem. All right. Question number four. You mentioned that you write your own song. So which comes first to you, the music or the lyrics? And what is the top hardest thing about writing a song? Um, The hardest thing is getting it down fast enough because it comes everything in my head. So making sure that I have my phone audio app so I get it down because it's basically like the song is sung in my head. Yes, I'm weird. Yes, I'm strange. (laughs) But the whole thing comes. You know, it's like I get a verse or I get a hook or I get a chorus and then I can create the other verses later. But I know the tune. I know the beat. It's like somebody turned on a song thing in my head. It's a totally different process than writing uh, words. But I hear it. Oh, oh, I hear it. Uh, I used to, before I had the app on my phone, I would call the house phone and sing it into the house phone. And my husband would say, do you still need that? I was like, don't delete nothing. And, you know, don't delete it. You know, uh, I get everything in my head. It's a gift. It's clearly a gift. I don't have that gift. I learned how to read music and took piano lessons. And I just don't have that innate musical Right. talent. Although I feel like from having taken piano lessons, because I always thought to do anything, you have to be good at it. Like when I was in high school, I didn't take art classes because I thought you had to already be good at art. I think there are people who have innate yeah. abilities, but yeah. I think a lot of people just pick up something and they become interested and they practice, you yeah. know, whatever that is, 10,000 yeah. hours yeah. and they're good. Okay. So you mentioned technology. So that's your last top five questions. So what do you think is the top misconception people have about learning a new technology that holds them back? I'm going to mess something up. I'm going to break something. That's the biggest uh, misconception. Even myself back in the eighties, working with the word processor, et cetera, when I realized I could not break it, quote unquote, okay, I can do it. Now I still have a resistance because I do like my comfort zone. So my husband will tell you, I am, I got to learn something new. What does it do? Ah. You know, he's the one who, as they say, kicks the tires and pushes all the buttons and see how everything works. Me, I only do what I need to do to get done what I need to get done. And then I'll figure out all the bells and whistles later because he always fusses at me. You didn't know it did that too? (laughs) Well, no, I didn't try that. You didn't push all the buttons. No, I didn't. And then I have people that are much, much younger than my parents or my in-laws who don't, oh, I don't text. I said, listen, if my 80-year-old mother is texting, forwarding videos, forwarding pictures, y'all can do it. Y'all, come on now. Y'all are not 80 years old, so y'all can do it. So just really taking it one step at a time. And if you got grandchildren, they'll help you. If you got little ones and little kids down the street, I help you. But, you know, we're here in the technological world and technology is not going anywhere. It's here to stay. 
All right. Well, Julia, thank you so much for being a guest on the Perks of Being a Book Lover. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate you all for having me. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.